Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, we have been reading uh, about David's life together from the books of First and Second Samuel. And uh, here's where we are in the story. David has uh, returned to Jerusalem to retake his throne after his son Absalom's attempt at a coup. And that is uh, pretty much the end of the story in 2 Samuel. But there are four other chapters at the end of 2 Samuel. Uh, and they form a kind of an interesting epilogue to the book. Those last four chapters begin and end uh, with a story about a natural disaster. And then in from those ends, there are two really significant lists. And then right at the heart of those chapters uh, are two poems written by David. Um, they're not arranged chronologically. Um, they're arranged, I think, thematically. And together, these chapters form a kind of coda or a postlude on the rule uh, and life of David. So this morning, here's what we're going to do. We're going to read one of those poems. And we're going to read a story from within one of those lists. So I'm going to read uh, from 1 Samuel 23 for us. And you can follow along where it's printed in the order of worship. Now these are the last words of David. The oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. The spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, Ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. For does not my house stand so with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire? But worthless men are all like thorns that are thrown away, for they cannot be taken with the hand. But the man who touches them arms himself with iron in the shaft of a spear, and they are utterly consumed with fire. And three of the thirty chief men went down and came about harvest time to David at the cave of Adjalam, when a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim. David was then in the stronghold, and the garrison of the Philistines was then at Bethlehem. And David said longingly, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. Then the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and carried it and brought it to David. But he would not drink of it. He poured it out to the Lord and said, Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Should I drink the blood of the men who went at the risk of their lives? Therefore, he would not drink it. These things the three mighty men did. This is God's word, and it's given for our good. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask uh, that you would use this word that we've read and heard together to meet us uh, in exactly the places where we find ourselves this morning in whatever conditions we are sitting here this morning. 
whatever we're facing or not facing in our life for good or for bad, however strong or weak we feel in faith or if we're not even sure we have faith, meet us all. Show us how much you love us in Jesus again and change us by that. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, I am a fan of uh, the Chicago Fire. And when I say that, I want you to know I don't mean the great Chicago Fire of 1871, and I do not mean the NBC television show. I am a fan of the soccer team, the Chicago Fire. And if any of you follow that team even a little bit, um, you might think that I'm telling you that I'm a fan of them to elicit sympathy or comfort from you or something like that, but I am not. Um, They are horrible this season. They lost again last night at home. They have been horrible for many seasons in a row now, but I am still a supporter. And that's really why I'm mentioning it, just to talk about the nature of devotion. For me, supporting the fire is a very easy calculus. I am a fan of soccer, and my city has a team. And so they are my team. It's really that simple. That's the simple choice that I've made. It's very easy to defend. And it doesn't matter to me whether they're really good or really bad. That is not relevant to the calculus. They're my side, so I support them. And that's always the nature of devotion. It's fidelity to something no matter what. So all I can say as it relates to the fire is choose the things that you show devotion to very wisely (laughs) because you can take it on the chin year after year after year. And this story that we just read points us toward devotion and fidelity. Those three guys who run off to Bethlehem were clearly devoted to David. And his response shows that he was clearly devoted to them. It's a very moving story, but I want to suggest that that story points to an even deeper devotion that matters right here and right now for people like you and me. So before we get to that story, though, we start with what the writer of 2 Samuel calls the last words of David. So spoiler alert, these are not the actual last words of David. Those happen just before he dies, and if you want to read them, you can check out 1 Kings 2 later this afternoon. These are different than those kinds of words. It could be one of his last poems that he wrote. And as it stands, it is a simple reflection on rule. It is a simple reflection on the nature of leadership. And the heart of it is in verses 3 and 4. David writes that God, the rock of Israel, has told him what genuinely good leadership and rule is like. He says, God says this, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, He dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. A life that is ordered around the fear of God brings really, really good things to people. That's what God says. A life that is ordered around the fear of God brings really, really good things to people. 
And I want to remind you that uh, when Scripture talks about uh, fearing God like this, it doesn't mean being afraid that he's going to jump out and get you or something. Living in the fear of God means simply living life in reference to God. It means remembering that God is there. It means living life in a way that remembers what he has done for the world and for me and for you. It means living in a way that remembers what it is that he requires of people like you and me. That's what it means to live life with the fear of God. You know, when somebody lives like that, when somebody lives their whole life with reference to God, knowing that they live under his gaze, it brings flourishing to their life. And when someone lives like that and they're in a position of rule, they're in a position of authority, then that same flourishing extends out across lots and lots and lots of other people. It leads to verdancy and it leads to life and it leads to good growth among lots of people. Just like the morning light on a cloudless morning. You know, like the rain for all the plants of the earth. And I don't know about you, but I will take all of that kind of leadership that you've got. I'll take it in our church. I'll take it in our, our political life, both national and local. I'll take it in every one of our relationships. I'll take it in our families. I will take it in our workplaces because that is leadership like Jesus taught in the gospel lesson. That is leadership that is devoted to the good and the interest of the other and not first to the good and interest of the self. And that kind of nourishing leadership is what God wants for this broken world. That kind of nourishing, verdant leadership is what he wants for us. And as uh, we have seen, you know, as we have talked about David's life for many months now, there are times when David led like that and there were times where he definitely didn't, but this is not really about David in the end because in verse 5 he remembers that God has made an everlasting covenant with his house. And uh, we talked about that back in May when we read 2 Samuel 7 together. That was a promise that God made to his people through David that there would be a son of David ruling over them forever. And that's a great reminder. That David's most important role as a king, I mean he did lots of stuff as a king, but David and all of the kings that came after him really had one important thing to do, and that was to reflect and to be a witness to God's gracious kingship over all of his people. Sometimes David was great at that, and sometimes he was not. But that did not change, church, the essential nature of the promise. God promised fidelity to his people. God promised devotion to his people under all conditions, no matter what. It did not matter if their kings stunk up the place. And it did not matter if those very people ran away from God like they never wanted to hear from him again. It did not matter. He sticks with them. And he sticks with us anyway. An everlasting covenant a throne unshaken forever. And that is some very, very good news. And for sure, 
David, on his very best days, understood that and reflected it. And that brings us to this beautiful story in verses 13 through 17. This uh, probably happened shortly after David became king. 2 Samuel 5 has a few lines about this moment in David's life. 2 Samuel 5 says that the Philistines, who, as you might know, had a long and contentious history with the people of Israel, had made an incursion into Judea looking for David shortly after he became king. I think the idea was probably to strike him down during this transition before he had really settled in as a king to take advantage of some of the instability. So David and a bunch of his best guys escape to this old desert stronghold, the cave of Adjalam, and they make plans there to repel the attack and to push the Philistines back. So David is in his stronghold in the desert, and 15 miles away, there's a garrison of Philistines stationed at his hometown in Bethlehem. And David muses out loud, oh man, (laughs) that someone would give me some water to drink from the well that's at the gate in Bethlehem. Now this is not about David being thirsty. David is in a, uh, a very well-stocked and well-fortified stronghold. They have got water. <laughs> this is about something else. And it doesn't take a brain surgeon to figure it out. He wants some of that hometown water. He wants some of that water he drank back when he was a kid. David wants some comfort. He wants to feel like he's home. And that is a a pretty elemental longing for human beings. (laughs) I'm pretty sure that all of us here this morning have felt longing like that at some point in our lives, in particular when things are difficult like they are right now for David. And it might not be a longing for water from your actual hometown, but it is a longing for something that feels like comfort and that feels like rest and that feels like home to you. Something that feels like when things were simpler and clearer and saner and you had a better sense of who you were and a better sense of what you were meant for in this world. And you know what? <laughs> lots of theologians and lots of philosophers and poets and Singers and playwrights and preachers and painters have been telling human beings for millennia what that longing is really all about. It's a longing for the only real home that we actually have. It is a longing for God. An infinite void that can only be filled by the infinite. A thirst that can only be quenched by water that is alive. I feel that, I feel that longing all of the time. And so do you, and so did David. And three of his best guys hear it. (laughs) They hear it and they get an idea. And it is such a dumb, dangerous, stupid, thrilling, beautiful idea. (laughs) 
They strap on their swords and they grab a flask and they slip off into the desert. And their devotion to David somehow drives them to break through the enemy lines and to break through the camp of the Philistines and to draw water from that very well by the gate in Bethlehem. And they bring it back to David. It's an astounding act. I mean, who knows how these guys pulled it off. All I can say is get yourself some guys like this, you know, and they're standing there with that water and they're holding it out to their chief. And David sees it so clearly. And he sees it so incisively. He sees their devotion and in an instant he decides rightly that he is not worthy of a drop of that water. He's not worthy of any of it. And he takes that flask and he pours it out as an offering to God. He does not waste it. He worships with it. And as that water is sinking into the desert sand, David sees it as a holy thing. And he says, far be it from me, Yahweh, far be it from me that I should ever do this thing. Should I drink from the blood of the men who went at risk of their lives? And I'm sure those guys were not sore about this at all. It was probably the best thing they had ever seen him do in their lives. It was a very, very good day at the cave of Agilam. Their devotion and fidelity to David was met with his fidelity and devotion to them. And I don't doubt, you know, I don't doubt for a second as David poured out that water as an act of worship to Yahweh that he felt a taste of that home and that peace and that comfort that he was meant for in God. A more lasting and secure home than any drink from any hometown well. And this brings us back to our own longing for a sense of home. (laughs) Our own, you know, often unnamed and unspoken longing to know God and to be known by God and to feel his, his pleasure and his peace and his grace and his blessing in our lives to have a sense that we have been made for him, to have a sense that he has made us to be useful for the life of this world, to have a sense that we have a place Church, what I want to say to you is that Jesus has overheard that longing. (laughs) He knows that we have it. And even though we were in no way worthy of it, and even though we were in no way deserving of it, he strapped on a sword and grabbed a flask and slipped out into the chaos and into the madness of the world's darkest night. And he broke through into the enemy camp not at the risk of his life, but at the loss of his life. (laughs) And he died for us and he was brought to life again and now he has fought his way back to the Father, a high priest of the good things that have come, 
by means of his own blood, securing eternal redemption for people like you and me. Forgiveness of sins and peace with God and a home. Church, Jesus did that for us. And he did it out of an unswerving, unalterable devotion and fidelity to us. And I know that that's hard to believe. I know you can hear that and sometimes think that can't possibly be true. In part because we know exactly who we are. But you and me being really good or you and me being really bad is not relevant at all to the calculus of his devotion to us. It does not matter. I'm telling you this good news, the good news of God's faithfulness, even when we're not faithful, it is the through line of the story of God and his world. It's the through line of the story of God with us, and it's absolutely true. And this kind of devotion and this kind of fidelity found expression in God's promise to have a son of David rule justly over his people forever and to restore this world and to restore us to the peace and the good that he created us for in the first place. And Jesus is that son of David and all that he fought for, all that he fought for is ours by repentance and faith. So rest in him for the first time or for the thousandth time today and you will be home. Let me pray for us. Father, we hear this and we can't help but say with, with our voices that Jesus dawns on us like the morning light, like the sun on a cloudless morning, like the rain that nourishes and gives life. So Father, we ask that you would do whatever it is that you need to do in us to make us a people who don't only say that with our mouths and, and articulate it with our voices, but pe people who believe it fully in every part of who we are, deep down into the deepest part of who we are in a way that changes how we live and act in this world. Father, do this for us. Help us to believe. Help us to cling to the son of David so that we will grow up and mature in our faith. And so that we can be a people through whom you love this broken world. And we pray this in his name. Amen.